This is Joel Johnson, Senior Minister at Parkview Christian Church. I want to thank you for listening to our sermons online. If you have any questions, feel free to contact me by email at joeljohnson at parkviewfinley.org. Right now, I have the pleasure to introduce to you Ken Eidelman. Uh, Ken has been a longtime friend of Parkview. He's uh, visited here years ago before I came to, to serve. Uh, he's been a good friend of our, our former senior minister, Neil Norheim. Uh, he served at Lincoln Christian University, Ozark Christian University. Uh, currently, he is uh, serving at the Solomon Foundation, and we have a partnership and uh, relationship with them as well. And uh, Ken comes today to speak to us about being a, a high-impact church. So, Ken. Thank you. Thank you, Jill. What a pleasure it is to be back in Finley, Ohio, after a long absence. And uh, I am just uh, thrilled to see the signs of progress uh, since I was here last. I think the last time I was here, uh, it was literally Park View. You, you had a, a building overlooking the park, and you moved outside of town here. You have quite a bit more space and uh, a great location for the, the future of the church. And so I appreciate your vision and just delighted to be here to work with your leaders yesterday and to preach God's word for you this morning. And I can tell you that I am energized to preach this message to help us all discover for the first time or perhaps rediscover the genius of our Heavenly Father in providing the absolutely priceless resource of the church. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15, the Apostle Paul erupts with gratitude when he says, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And he was talking about Jesus. I want to talk about the indescribable gift of his church. And I, uh, I don't want to be the least bit subtle in my approach. I want, to be, I want to be up front. I want to put it all out there. I want to be completely open and honest about my agenda this morning. Here's my big idea in a statement. The church is not optional. It is indispensable. And I know as I say this, I'm speaking to a diverse audience. Some of you are longtime Christ followers. You have been and you currently are deeply immersed in the life of the church. And you faithful folks, I really want to commend this morning and celebrate. Others are in, but maybe not all the way. For whatever reasons, you've withheld yourself in your heart. You're a strong believer in the Lord, and the church is important to you. But honestly, it only has co-equal status with your desire for relaxation, your career, sporting goods, vacations, hobbies, entertainment, social contacts, civic responsibilities. And you folks, I want to challenge this morning. You good folks. Still others are on the outside of the church looking in. You're not in, but you're open. You're interested or you would not be in church today. And you folks, I want to convince. Tina Rosenberg is the author of a new secular book. I want you to listen to the title. Join the Club, How Peer Pressure Can Transform the World. Now, she's not a Christian author, but she's on to something. The question she addresses in her book is, how do you get people to change for the better? How do you get people to live healthier lives, to exercise, 
to not drink excessively. In short, how do you get people to grow long-term in a positive direction? And what she concluded is that people don't change simply by being by having the desire to change. They don't change by getting more information. She said almost everyone on planet Earth who smokes knows that smoking is bad for your health and they want to quit, but many continue to smoke anyway. So how are people persuaded to act in their own long-term self-interest? To not initiate that divorce without cause, to break free of pornography, to stop spending too much money or sleeping around. Again, people don't usually change by being confronted, nor do most people change by being made to feel guilty, nor do people change simply by getting more information about what they already know. Here's her bottom line in the book. She argues that people change best in community. Few things in life are more important in determining the kind of people we become than the group that we hang out with, the group in which, with which we regularly associate. The behaviors of those people, that people group, determines what we believe is appropriate or cool or desirable in our personal value system. Now, we all know about peer pressure, if you can recall your teenage years. The group we choose to identify with spontaneously shapes the way we think and talk and act. And in fact, in her book, she suggests that second only to the gift of our DNA, the contribution of our genes to our children, the most important thing a parent can do in successfully raising a child is helping that child choose the right peer group. The author asserts that all the other things we do as parents, teaching, disciplining, nurturing, they rank up there, but they can all be derailed if your son or daughter chooses to associate with the wrong friends. And what's true for teens works for us as adults, whether we're talking about losing weight or getting exercise or achieving an education or excelling in our job performance, social support and peer pressure have been discovered to be the quickest and best way that people change. Weight Watchers knows this. Alcoholics Anonymous knows this. The Point Man Ministry knows that group support is a key to helping military veterans overcome the effects of post-traumatic stress disorder. Psychologists and counselors develop support groups for people from everything from grief recovery to addictions. So what does any of this have to do with being a follower of Christ or why you came to church today? Listen, friends. There are few false beliefs that have derailed more lives than this one. I don't need church. More and more people in America today say they believe in the basic doctrines of Christianity. They believe that Jesus lived and died on the cross for their sins, that he's the only Savior that he rose from the dead. Most sane Americans believe that God created the universe. Many people believe that Christ will one day 
return. But they also say, even though I believe I don't belong to any church, and I really don't see why I should be a part of a church. The Lord and I have an understanding. You've heard that. But those are people who are saying salvation is on my terms, not God's terms. And I think sometimes when people say the Lord and I have an understanding, it's, it's kind of a lie that they tell themselves. But regardless, it's resulted in a growing epidemic of what I would call unchurched Christians. Now, typically, these are people who are believers, but they're not a part of a church. They bolster their non-involvement in church with a number of excuses and justifications. My kids are in club sports, and they're in full swing. Or Sunday morning is our only time to relax or sleep in or do chores around the house. Or we've got so much going on right now, church is just not a priority. And even if folks have an hour and a half to assemble for worship every week, some will say, well, I know so-and-so who is plugged in there and they're a hypocrite. Who wants to hang out with people who say one thing and do something entirely different during the week? In short, many folks object to church because church doesn't meet their standard, their ideal of what church ought to be like. You know, the, the worship music is too loud or it's, it's too soft or I don't like the style or the sermon is too intellectual or it's not intellectual enough or I don't like a couple of people who attend there or the children's ministry doesn't meet my standards or I went there one time and the coffee didn't taste good or they spend too much money on the building, or they spend not enough money on the building, or there are too many people, it's too big, or there are too few people, it's too small. One of the best responses to these superficial objections to church, because it doesn't meet my standard, was written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer in a wonderful little book about the church called Life Together. Here's what he wrote. Innumerable times... A whole Christian community has broken down because of someone's wish dream. He who loves his dream of a church more than the Christian church itself becomes a destroyer of the church. God hates wish dreams. They make the dreamer proud and pretentious. That was written by a man who literally sacrificed his life for Christ and the church in a Nazi concentration camp. You see, the problem with rejecting the church altogether or relegating it to a marginal place in our priorities is that we're setting ourselves up as judges instead of coming alongside the church with an attitude of humility. It's like standing above the church, believing we have the right and the authority to critique everything. And in that place, we actually hinder the possibility of real love and real fellowship occurring in the church. So let me respond more directly to this question. Why is the church indispensable for you and me? Even if you get all the Christian content you need from websites and books and podcasts and TV and radio, even if you think attending church and getting involved in the deeper life of the church just makes your life more hectic and, and crazy, let's go to the account in the Bible that tells us about the day historically, that the church was born. 
and see that the church is God's idea. It is his plan for you, for me, for all of humanity. He, he is the inventor of life change in community. He is the inventor of life change by peer pressure. He's the originator of our perpetual spiritual growth through Christian community, and, and it all began on what Scripture identifies as the day of Pentecost. Fifty days after the resurrection of Jesus in the city of Jerusalem, you know the account, the apostle Peter had just preached the gospel message for the very first time in Jerusalem to an assembled crowd, and 3,000 responded, were baptized, and became the very first church. And here's what we read in Acts 2, 42 to 47. They, that is these new believers, new baptized believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe. Many wonders and miraculous signs were done by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and goods they gave to anyone as he had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now the character of the high-impact church is revealed in this text. What makes this community so vital? to our spiritual life and growth. Well, I think we see it in this. First of all, they were learning together. It says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So these new Christians were not having some kind of mystical experience which led them to ignore their intellect. On the contrary, they met constantly to hear the apostles teach. And notice that they did not suppose that because they had received the Holy Spirit, they could dispense with any human teachers, not at all. They acknowledged that Jesus had called the apostles to be the teachers of the church. And those who had been with him for three years were entrusted with his message. And the purpose of the signs and wonders performed by the apostles in the book of Acts was to authenticate that their message was from God. So how is it possible for us in the 21st century to submit ourselves and our churches to the teaching ministry of the apostles today? Well, first, we've got to realize that there are no apostles alive today. There are no surviving eyewitnesses to the resurrection, and there haven't been for 2,000 years. And some today may falsely claim the title of apostle, but no one has the apostolic authority of Paul, John, Peter, James, we submit to apostolic authority by learning from the apostles in the New Testament exclusively. No supplementary catechisms or human writings. So we affirm, first of all, that the living church is a learning church, a church that's submissive to the teaching authority of the apostles of Jesus. And its pastors expound scripture from the pulpit. Its teachers impress biblical truths to its children and young adults. And the parents teach the Bible to their children at home. 
The church's members read and reflect on the Scriptures in order to grow in the Christian faith. So the church is a learning together kind of community. And I don't know about you. I'm 75. I don't have all the answers yet. I'm still in a learning mode. I want to live higher. I want to grow deeper in my understanding of what's right and true. And I find in the Word of God the profound truths that animate my life and the lives of my loved ones. I want to keep learning and growing, and that happens best in the context of community. But they didn't just learn together. They also cared together. They were caring together. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, and the Greek word here is the word koinonia, specifically referring to the expression of our fellowship, which prompts us to be compassionate and generous. It says all the believers were together and had everything in common, selling their possessions and goods. They gave to anyone as he had need. Now, here's the thing. When the Holy Spirit takes up residence in your life, He unites you with other people in affection for each other. And He gives His people a tender heart for the poor and needy. We don't just care about each other. We also care about those who are outside the church. We understand that as the church, we exist for the benefit of those who are not yet a part of our fellowship. And this generosity has always been a characteristic of the people of God, this generosity of spirit. Our God is a big-hearted, open-handed God, and we, His people, His children, must be caring too. And I have to tell you, I've been amazed so many times by the caring spirit of the church. Now, my up-close and personal exposure to it have been the last few years at Crossroads Christian Church in Evansville, Indiana, Southeast Christian Church in Louisville, Kentucky, over the last 16 years or so. And here's what I've seen at Crossroads. There was an earthquake in Haiti, maybe some of you remember. $170,000 was sent from our church, just one church, sent to aid earthquake victims in Haiti, sent to our missionary partners there to distribute, to meet needs. 506,000 meals were paid for, assembled, and shipped by 2,300 people to starving children there. 20,000 items were trucked to storm-ravaged Alabama. You remember the, the tornado in Alabama. A 28-foot truck was packed with supplies for tornado victims in Joplin, Missouri. $56,000 was given to fund relief efforts, just one church a large deployment of people to Joplin. They took $40,000 worth of materials, 120 laborers. They spent over a week there to assist and clean up and to roof 15 houses for uninsured or underinsured families near the tornado strike zone. 75 homes were fully winterized by the Crossroads Church, workers from the church in the Glenwood area and under-resourced area in the city of Evansville, helping low-income families significant, significantly reduce their energy costs. Some of the people were paying more for their energy bills than they were rent for their ranshackled homes. Yearbooks were purchased, prayer partnerships established for every school boy and every school girl in the Glenwood area. 
Bunk beds were constructed, transported, reassembled on site for American Indian evangelism in South Dakota. All that happened in the span of two or three years. At Southeast in Louisville, too much to tell. Thirteen multi-site campuses established debt-free as the church has grown from 17,000 to nearly 35,000. Last December, 2001, a year-end offering that totaled over $10 million to build a nationally prominent center to disciple victims of human trafficking and refugees of domestic violence. And where does it stop? No, it won't stop till the Lord returns. As long as we maintain ourselves as a caring church, the church is the most big-hearted, open-handed organization on this planet. Anytime there's a catastrophe of any kind, the first people on the scene, usually Samaritan's purse, and they're always the last ones to leave. So, so far I've said that if you're not in church, you're not learning all you should. And if you're not in church, you're not caring as much as you could. The third thing I'd want to mention is that they were worshiping together. So they weren't just learning together and caring together. They were also worshiping together. You see that. They committed themselves to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And this is uh, surely a reference to the Lord's Supper, though probably also with a fellowship meal included. I'm impressed by the early church's worship. It is both formal and informal. It is both, it is both uh, joyful and reverent. First, it's, it's both formal and informal. According to Acts 2.46, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. That would be the more formal worship. And they broke bread in their homes. That's the informal worship. It's not either or. It's both and. And in the same way, we must not polarized between structured and unstructured worship. The purpose of corporate worship is to unite God's people in praise. And I know that my generation, people often prefer more traditional and formal worship. Younger people tend to prefer more spontaneous and casual worship. Well, the early church had both, and we need both. So I want to commend the practice of intergenerational worship. It's a beautiful thing, and we make it a reality by entering into the spirit of preferring one another in love and not insisting on a my-size-fits-all worship style. Worship in the early church was both formal and informal. It was also both joyful and reverent. The Greek word at the end of verse 46 of the text says they worshiped with glad and sincere hearts, and the word for glad here is the word for expressive, exuberant joy. It's the same word that you see in Galatians 5.22 referring to the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, joy. But if joy should characterize our worship, so should reverence. Dr. Luke writes, everyone was filled with awe. That's in verse 43. The sovereign and holy God had come to earth in his son, and so they bowed before him in wonder and humility. And I love it when we gather for worship that sometimes we smile and we sing and we clap and we sway and we laugh together. And I love it that sometimes we wipe tears and bow 
and stand in solemn reverence and pray together. Well, finally, the High Impact Church is also regularly a church that is witnessing together. The Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now, I suppose a million sermons have been preached on Acts 2.42. It gives us comprehensive account of the church, but on its own, verse 42 presents kind of an unbalanced picture. It gives the impression that the early church was only interested in studying at the feet of the apostles, caring for its own members, and worshiping God. Not so. Verse 47 makes it clear that they were engaged in bringing others to Jesus Christ. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. And I want you to notice that the Lord didn't add them to the church without saving them first. And he didn't save them without adding them to the church. Salvation and church involvement, they went together and they still do. We cannot separate them. So how often did the Lord add to their number those who were being saved? Well, it says day by day. So evangelism was not an occasional activity. It was the heartbeat of the high-impact church. Now, looking over these four marks of the high-impact church, it's apparent that they all have to do with the believer's relationships. They were related to the apostles' teaching, so it was a learning church. They were related to each other, so it was a caring, sharing church. And they were related to God. It was a worshiping church. And they were related to the non-Christian world. It was a witnessing church. And faithfully being in the community of the church will dramatically influence and impact your life and your family. You cannot be who the Lord wants you to be without being rooted and grounded in the church. You cannot say yes to Jesus and no to his body, no to his bride, the church. And it actually starts with that relationship, your relationship with Jesus. So if you're ready to trust Jesus Christ to be your Savior and Lord, if you're ready to be added to his church, that's where we've come down to as we close. I remember uh, years ago picking up a hymnal and reading the words to a hymn about the church. It was written by Timothy Dwight. I did a little research on Timothy Dwight. He was the president of Yale University. When he ascended to the role of president of that university, the university was steeped in skepticism and hedonism. And um, Timothy Dwight was the president of Yale University, but he was also, he was also a pastor and a Bible student and a church builder, and he transformed Yale University. Now, those who've come along since Timothy Dwight have taken it back down the former path. But Timothy Dwight wrote these words that I can't sing without getting emotional, so I'm going to read the lyrics to you.
and they're a little archaic, but I hope they won't go over your head. I hope they'll find their mark in your heart this morning. Timothy Dwight wrote about the church, I love thy kingdom, Lord, the house of thine abode. The church, our blessed Redeemer, bought with his own precious blood. I love thy church, O God. Her walls before thee stand, dear as the apple of thine eye, and graven on thy hand. For her, that is the church, my tears shall fall. For her, my prayers ascend. To her, my cares and toils be given till toils and cares shall end. Beyond my highest joy, I prize her heavenly ways, her sweet communion, solemn vows, her hymns of love and praise. Sure as thy truth shall last, to Zion, to the church, shall be given the brightest glories earth can yield and brighter bliss of heaven. Father God, I am so thankful from the depths of who I am that my mother and dad found Jesus in their late 30s and they rooted us and grounded us in the church, a little country church that changed the destinies of all of us in the family. My mother and dad and my older sister and older brother and me and my younger brother. We will all be together in heaven one day because of Jesus and his church. And Lord, I thank you that we've had an opportunity to reflect on the blessing of the church. And in this Thanksgiving season, help us, Lord, not to overlook it, take it for granted. But when we gather around our Thanksgiving tables and we are thankful for Jesus, we'll be thankful for our church, His church. We thank you that we belong to you while we live and that you are coming for your church one day and we'll be with you forever. In Jesus' name, we give thanks. Amen.